Pushkin. Hey there, Against the Rules listeners. It's Michael Lewis here. You might have heard that I've been working on a new book about the crypto exchange FTX and its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried. And I'm still working on it, talking to experts on background here in this feed. And I'm finally able to tell you just a bit more about the book itself, like the title, for instance, and when it will be published. So here we go. My next book is going to be called Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon. It's coming out October 3rd. And rather than tell you what's in it, because I think a lot of the pleasure is going to come from you not knowing what's in it, how about I just read you a little jacket copy? And I quote, Michael Lewis takes you along on a quest to understand who Sam Bankman-Fried really is, what motivated him, and what his spectacular rise and fall means for the rest of us. Who was this rumpled guy in cargo shorts and limp white socks whose eyes twitched across Zoom meetings as he played video games on the side? Ride on the roller coaster with me as I trace the ups and downs of a character who never liked the rules and was allowed to live by his own until it all came undone. I didn't write those words, but I think they sound okay. I'd read that book if I weren't still writing it. Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon will be available October the 3rd, 2023. In fact, you can pre-order it now from your favorite bookstore. Look forward to your response. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey everyone, Michael Lewis here. Today we're back in your feed to bring you an episode from Revisionist History, another podcast from Pushkin Industries. This season on Revisionist History, Malcolm Gladwell is diving into one of the most infuriating corners in American life, guns. The six-episode series looks at America's gun problem through topics like TV westerns, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, and the insanity of the Supreme Court. 
In the first episode, Malcolm takes a close look at a name that popped up in a recent landmark Supreme Court ruling on the Second Amendment, a 17th century Englishman named John Knight. He'll discover who this man is and why so much about 21st century American gun control hinges on his story. All right, here's the episode. You can binge listen to all six episodes early and ad-free by subscribing to Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcasts or by visiting pushkin.fm slash plus. Or hear the episodes weekly in the Revisionist History podcast feed. It's 1686 in Bristol, a major port and manufacturing center on the southwest coast of England. A local merchant named John Knight, Sir John Knight, is riding up a steep road outside the city to an Anglican church, St. Michael's on the Hill. Grey stone, slate roof, sturdy walls, built during medieval times to withstand the full brunt of hostile force. The city of Bristol spread out below. Sir John Knight bursts in, and then, oh my God. John Knight! My name is Malcolm Gladwell. You're listening to Revisionist History, my podcast about things overlooked and misunderstood. In this episode, I invite you to descend with me into the deep and bottomless historical pit that is Sir John Knight. The irrepressible Englishman who has achieved, more than three centuries after his death, a sudden and extraordinary celebrity. How was it that the the John Knight case came to such prominence? Who uncovered it? It, it doesn't sound like it, this wasn't a case that was in there wasn't a famous case in England at the time. No, I, I don't. I hate to say it's like you know, like if you talk about history, like you know, you can go to Africa and find a rock with somebody's name on it. This is you know, founded by a white guy in, in 1918. No, <laughs> it was existent, right? It was there. It's always been there. So I wanted I wanted to explain um, how that happened and why he matters. And I know that this is something you've thought about, so I naturally wanted to call you. Um, for, first question, settle for me. Who is the first modern legal scholar to reference Sir John Knight? Depends on what you mean by modern. Uh, William Hawkins in his, seven to six, in his uh, 1716 treatise. I mean last 50 years. His most recent oh. celebrity. Well, I mean, he was around in uh, in case law, you know, not as common as he's been in the 21st century, but he was he was always around um, in case law to some degree. You know, shows up in a uh, major 1843 case in North Carolina, and then another uh, 1968 North Carolina case, among others. So yeah, thank you. I, I I you know I was I got really interested in the way the Second Amendment debate has been transformed and in this sort of focus on history and um, I got I, the reason I got into it is I got really fascinated by the Sir John Knight case 
now. Uh, oh, yes, right. Um, and everyone says, oh, the person you have to talk to is Joyce Malcolm. So here I am, and here you are. And, and um, here I am, yeah. <laughs> right. When you were doing your book, your original work on this, how did you come across the Sir John Knight case? Ah, uh, well, it's a long time ago now. John Knight's name is spoken first only in the smallest of historical circles. Then it gets repeated again and again with increasing frequency in bigger and bigger rooms. I was at a conference in D.C. where they were discussing Second Amendment issues and they had people giving papers from all perspectives. And I was just there to offer some you know, historical input. And I found myself having to clarify some of the basic details and you know, misassertions had been made about uh, what had actually happened. So I said, I happen to know about this because I've read a lot of the sources. Do we know what Sir John looked like? His family life? His personal circumstances? Not really. But we do know something of his character principled to a fault, contentious, possessed of a steadfastness of mind and deed. So he was a Bristol merchant. He was this, um, from quite an important Bristol mercantile family. And perhaps because his father had been a, a sugar um, maker, Sir John Knight appears to have gone out to the West Indies and spent a period of time there apparently rather controversially, because when he then applied um, a couple of years before the period we're dealing with to be the governor of the Leeward Islands, um, he appears to have been vetoed by the people there, saying that from their experience of him, he was the last person that they wanted to come out as the governor. Uh, and it may have been partly his resentment at that throwback, people have suggested, may have been one reason why he turned against the government of James II, which up until that point, he had been very strongly supporting. So um, he appears to have been a man of a short temper, much disliked by many other people, and highly manipulative. But do we need to make friends of our heroes? No, we don't. What we demand of our heroes is that they serve some larger cause, that they stand for something, that their name would be uttered with reverence on some grand stage. I know um, uh, you, you've uh, had a substantial debate with your friends on the other side about the statute of Northampton. Do you know who that is? Neil Gorsuch, Supreme Court Justice, during oral arguments in November of 2021, posing a question to the legendary appellate lawyer, Paul Clement. We haven't heard about that today, and I just wanted to give you a chance. Thank you, Justice Gorsuch. I'd say just a couple of quick things about the statute of Northampton. Wait for it. Wait for it. First of all, I think that it was very clear from the Knight's case and the treatises that this court relied on in Heller that by the time of the framing of the... The Knight's case. John Knight... As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen 
with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first-place winner in the industry category at last year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bed 365 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. When the final accounting is done of the 21st century, a handful of Supreme Court cases will stand out as landmarks. The Citizens United case from 2010, for example, which freed corporations to spend enormous amounts of money on political candidates. The decision to overturn abortion rights. And, very high on that list, a pivotal gun rights case that came before the court in late 2021. We will hear argument this morning in case 2843, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. New York Rifle and Pistol, otherwise known as the Bruin case. Bruin was about the Second Amendment to the Constitution, a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. What does that sentence mean? 
For years and years, scholars have argued about that. We even weighed in on it here at Revisionist History, if you remember, in Season 3's Divide and Conquer episode, with an investigation of the significance of the commas that surround the phrase, being necessary to the security of a free state. But then along comes the Bruin case. For 100 years, a law has been on the books in New York State that says you can only get a handgun if you prove you need one for some specific purpose. And the gun lovers of New York are unhappy about this. They sue. The Supreme Court agrees to take the case. And in November of 2021, lawyers for both sides gather for what is the first stage in all Supreme Court cases, oral arguments. They're in the court's central chamber on First Street, across from the Capitol. An imposing room in the grand neoclassical revival style. 44-foot ceilings, 24 ionic columns in marble shipped from Liguria, Italy. The justices are sitting all in a row behind a long, curved mahogany table, there to hear the lawyers on both sides of the Bruin case present their oral arguments. The room's packed. A sense of anticipation is in the air. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the text of the Second Amendment enshrines a right not just to keep arms, but to bear them. And the relevant history and tradition, exhaustively surveyed by this court in the Heller decision, confirm that the text protects an individual right to carry firearms outside the home for purposes of self-defense. Paul Clement, lawyer for the gun rights group. I'm happy to continue uh, by point. Uh, Mr. Clement, um, sorry to interrupt you. That's Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Thomas would go on to write the court's majority opinion in the case. This is the moment where he tips his hand, shows us where he's leaning. If we analyze this um, and use history, tradition, text of the Second Amendment, we're going to have to do it by analogy. So can you give me a regulation on in history that is a base that would form a basis for legitimate regulation today. If we're going to do it by analogy, what would we analogize it to? What would that look like? If you were a law student armed with a yellow highlighter, you would underline the words history and tradition. Why? Because Thomas is telling us something crucial here. He doesn't care about the commas in the Second Amendment. He doesn't care about the arcane theories of the legal scholars. He doesn't even care about what the citizens of New York State may or may not think about restricting handguns. He cares about what the founders thought when they wrote the Second Amendment. And when he says, you're going to have to do it by analogy, what he means is the only way to decide whether a restriction on guns is valid, is consistent with the Second Amendment, is did the founders way back when ever consider a restriction that looks like this New York law? Would they have been okay with it? And Clement agrees. So can you give me a regulation on, in history that is a base, that would form a basis for legitimate regulation today? Yes. That's what this case is about. We're arguing history here. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Then the attorney for the other side stands up, Barbara Underwood, Solicitor General of the State of New York. For centuries, English and American law have imposed limits on carrying firearms in public in the interest of public safety. The history runs 
from the 14th century statute of Northampton, which prohibited carrying arms in fairs and markets and other public gathering places, to similar laws adopted by half of the American colonies and states in the founding period. The statute of Northampton. That's the third time we've heard it mentioned. In a case heard in the 21st century about a law passed in the 20th century, the court has asked for insight into how the founders felt in the 18th century, and the lawyers said, well then, we need to look to the 14th century. 1328, to be precise. Your Honor, during the reign of Edward II, the English Parliament passed the Statute of Northampton, which says that no man shall disturb the peace by riding armed night or day, without, quote, forfeiting their bodies to prison at the king's pleasure. The Statute of Northampton is part of English common law. English common law is what the first English settlers brought with them on the Mayflower. English common law is what the founding fathers learned in school. You want an analogy from history? You want to play early history? I give you a crucial law from 1328, which absolutely the founders knew about that restricts guns way more than anything we're talking about in this court, Your Honor. If court cases are chess, this is check. The only way the gun rights crowd can win is if they can find their own bit of ancient history that trumps the statute of Northampton. And incredibly, they do. John Yeah, yeah. Going back to when you were doing your book, your original work on this, how did you come across the Sir John Knight case? Ah, uh, well, it was a long time ago now. But um, but I looked through all of the cases and the, the, there are these little handbooks on what the law was at different times that were published as, to help justices of the peace and judges. I looked through the laws. I did a lot of manuscript uh, reading and really investigating what Parliament was doing, what was happening at that time. Joyce Malcolm, the Patrick Henry Professor of Constitutional Law and the Second Amendment at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University in Virginia. In a world where history matters more than law or public sentiment, historians become heroes. The magazine National Review once described Joyce Malcolm as the nice girl who saved the Second Amendment, She, quote, looks nothing like a hardened veteran of the gun control wars. Small, slender, and bookish, she's a wisp of a woman who enjoys plunging into the archives and sitting through panel discussions at academic conferences. Malcolm felt the argument over gun rights had been set adrift from history. If we didn't know what the founders thought, how would we know what we should think? In her most famous book, To Keep and Bear Arms, The Origin of an American Right, she set out to answer that question. And while pouring through casebooks from the 18th and 19th century, she found it, the key that unlocked the whole mystery. No more than a handful of paragraphs and a short summary, but the story it told was riveting. It's 1686. England is overwhelmingly Protestant, legally and officially dominated by the Church of England. But for a brief period in the 1680s, the king was James II, who was Catholic. 
and Church of England loyalists were outraged by the possibility that the king might try and empower his fellow Catholics. And one of those outraged Church of England loyalists was a merchant from the coastal town of Bristol, a man named Sir John Knight. One day, Knight rides up a steep road outside Bristol to the Anglican Church of St. Michael on the Hill. He bursts in, the story goes, waving his guns, gives an impassioned speech. James II hears of it and has Knight arrested, charges him under the statute of Northampton. The information sets forth that the defendant did walk about the streets armed with guns and that he went into the church of St. Michael in Bristol in the time of divine service with a gun to terrify the king's subjects. And what happens? The jury decides. Not guilty. Joyce Malcolm reads this, and it takes her breath away. Everyone thinks that English common law, on which the American legal tradition is based, was hostile to people walking around with guns. But that is not true. John Knight was acquitted. John Knight goes up against the statute of Northampton, and John Knight wins. One side says, the statute of Northampton, check. The other side counters, John Knight, checkmate. So there's been this big debate about what the statute of Northampton meant, um, but I can say that if it was archaic by the 17th century, it was certainly archaic by the 18th century when we got the Second Amendment and for sure the 21st century. The nice girl who saved the Second Amendment. And if you read through the briefs filed before the Supreme Court in Bruin, what do you find? John Knight, everywhere. We hear about the famous case of Sir John Knight. We get history lessons on John Knight. We learn that the legal entanglement he found himself in after he burst into the church at St. Michael's on the Hill, is the most, quote, significant precedent, quote, in understanding a crucial turn in Second Amendment law. During oral arguments, Neil Gorsuch lobs a softball at Paul Clement about the statute of Northampton. I know um, uh, you've uh, had a substantial debate with your friends on the other side about the statute of Northampton. And Paul Clement knocks the question out of the park. John Knight, baby. John Knight. Then, six months later, comes the final ruling in Bruin. Just as Clarence Thomas promised, it's all about history. Eight pages on the period between 1285 and 1776. Five pages on colonial America. Nine pages on 1791 to the Civil War. Six pages on the path to reconstruction. One of the most important cases of our generation, a landmark that once and for all clarifies the most controversial of all the amendments to the U.S. Constitution. The debate is over. Now we know. Were the founders under the sway of the statute of Northampton? No, they were not, the court rules. History teaches us otherwise. The founders would have frowned on the way New York State tried to regulate handguns. And we know this because of one man's heroic acquittal. If you read the Bruin ruling, John Knight looms over it like a colossus. John Knight, John Knight, John Knight. He pops up again and again like a late 17th century whack-a-mole. I've been really drawn, in fact, this morning I was 
reading over again the stuff about the Rex v. Knight, the John Knight mm. case. I called up a Second Amendment scholar named Patrick Charles. Before long, talk swung to John Knight. Of course it did. There's no quitting John Knight once you catch John Knight fever. But you know, the, it's a totally fascinating history taken in itself. But in context, the idea that, you know, in the middle of a, of a contemporary debate about how to handle the possession of, of dangerous weapons in America, that we're spending our time obsessing about a case from the 17th century in Bristol in England is hilarious. Yes, on the one level, you're, you're absolutely correct. Patrick Charles and I agreed that it was hilarious to spend so much time on John Knight. And then what did we do? We continued talking about John Knight. John Knight is the groundhog who emerges from his musty English lair every spring to cast a shadow across 21st century jurisprudence. The beaver who stealthily builds a legal edifice out of mud and sticks. The constitutional scholar and a founding member of the John Knight fan club, David Koppel, once combed through the library of an 18th century law professor named George Wythe, who taught law to a Supreme Court justice, a couple of presidents, some founding fathers. And he found that John Knight's name was all over law books back then. Surely this is all the founders were talking about over a good pipe and a bottle of claret in the drawing rooms of colonial Philadelphia. You were in Bristol not long ago. I, I was. My wife and I were on vacation. And as we were on our way from Cornwall to Wales, uh, I did, we did stop at St. Michael Church in Bristol where all this stuff happened because I wanted to see it, maybe see if Sir John Knight was buried in that graveyard. David Koppel, on vacation, says to his wife, we cannot quit this storied aisle without paying homage to the man whose brave example saved America from the tyranny of restrictive gun laws. And it was interesting. It's not a huge cathedral-type church. It's a medium-sized church, but it's up on the hill. As I learned the hard way, because I was driving a stick shift, and uh, getting up that very steep hill was, uh, was quite a challenge. Yeah, yeah. But you're in the area and you couldn't resist to, to stop by. And actually, I kind of want to see St. Michael's myself. Well, go ahead. Tell me why you want, to, you want to see it too? Of course I do. I mean, who wouldn't want to learn of this giant in the place of his birth and death? But then, just as I was packing my bags for Bristol, I thought, wait, let me check in with a more disinterested historian of that period. I called around. Someone recommended a man named Jonathan Barry of the University of Exeter. When you, as a historian of this period, see the way the, that John Knight has suddenly popped up in American um, gun rights discourse, what's your reaction? Well, I find it bizarre because nobody in England's ever heard of him or the case. And it has no implication, you know, as far as I know, in the English jurisprudence, not that I'm a jurisprudence, you know, it, it, it's... It's, it's of no significance. Huh. So in England, John Knight is a nobody. But in the hallowed halls of the Supreme Court, three and a half thousand miles away, he's a superstar. It's a puzzle. And it is for puzzles like these that God invented revisionist history.
As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. One of the problems associated with the coronation of John Knight as the savior of the gun rights movement is that our understanding of the details of his arrest and acquittal was limited. We had the verdict but not much else. After all, it happened in 1686. It's not like there are digital records somewhere in the Bristol courthouse. What was known about the case came from legal catalogs from the 18th and 19th century, the kind that a lawyer or a judge might subscribe to, that offer brief summaries, news briefings, of the goings-on in various courthouses around England. That's what Joyce Malcolm found in her Eureka moment, a brief write-up from a long-ago legal newsletter 
on the matter of Rex v. Knight. It was about a paragraph long. But let's be honest. One paragraph in a legal digest is not exactly the strongest of foundations for completely overturning our understanding of the Second Amendment. And, perhaps more ominously, the newly inaugurated members of the Sir John Knight fan club tended to be lawyers. And lawyers deal in black and white, hard facts, the letter of the law, tangible evidence. But now they had crossed over into the land of history. And history is not like the law at all. History is a living, organic thing that gets rewritten all the time. I mean, why do you think we call this podcast Revisionist History? Because historians love to say, wait a minute, I found something new that makes me think we didn't quite realize what we were talking about before. And in the case of Sir John Knight, that something new was the newsletter of the intrepid Roger Morris. Roger Morris. Roger Morris was a journalist who wrote a private newsletter in the 1680s for a variety of well-connected clients. Roger Morris knew everyone and everything in late 17th century England. He passed on high-end gossip. He told stories no one had ever heard before about brothels and prostitutes and somebody bearing their breasts to the Moroccan ambassador. He wrote about how the ice was so thick in the long, cold winter of 1684 that people roasted an ox on the River Thames. He saw the king's baby and heir up close and reported, and you have to love this little bit of late medieval trolling. The child was a large, full child in the head and the upper parts, but not suitably proportioned in the lower parts. Roger Morris was a goldmine, but there were a few problems. The first was that Roger Morris's reputation did not extend beyond the late 17th century. His newsletters ended up in an obscure library in central London, where no one paid attention to them for several hundred years. Second problem. Roger Morris was incredibly prolific. The Roger Morris archives extend into the millions of words. So if you wanted to find out what Roger Morris had to say about this or that, you had to make a commitment. Third, and maybe the biggest problem of all, Roger Morris's entire life work was written in code. I mean, if you're going to diss the private parts of the heir to the throne, you have to take some precautions. There was an attempt by a historian called Douglas Lacey to try and do a started work on a, on a volume. That's the historian Tim Harris. He did a book in the 1950s. Um, he couldn't break the shorthand, couldn't break the code, and it's too much for one person to take on. A cryptographer from Oxford had to get involved. Teams of historians volunteered, passing the job down from one generation to the next. Until, finally, there it was a full shelf of encyclopedia-sized volumes offering hitherto unknown insights into one of the most complex eras in British history. And Roger Morris, it turns out, had a lot to say about Sir John Knight. It's a seven-volume edition, and there was a team of us uh, who did it. And now it's widely available, and because it's widely available, people are looking at it more and say, oh, there's not more we can find out about the Sir John Knight case. It's a incredible source. It has lots of very valuable information and is clearly well-informed. 
And if you could check his information against other sources, it's clearly accurate, but he also gives you additional information which you won't get elsewhere. So much additional information. Oh my God. So he was a Bristol merchant. He was um, from quite an important Bristol mercantile family. Jonathan Barry, historian at the University of Exeter. The Knights ran sugar refineries. They had plantations in the Caribbean. They were politically well-connected, and their sympathies did not lie with the Catholic King of England, James II. John Knight hated Catholics. One day, he learns that a group of Irish Catholics are holding a secret mass in a house in Bristol. He arranges to have the priest arrested. So he gets the Lord Mayor and other magistrates to raid this Catholic chapel. So a couple of weeks later, there's an anti-Catholic ritual in Bristol, which the government suspects the magistrates of Bristol and maybe Sir John Knight were involved in encouraging where they parade through the city, scoffing the mass. They they hold a piece of bread up in, in the air and they have someone dressed as a Virgin Mary and someone dressed as a monk and the monk is fondling the Virgin Mary. The monk is fondling the Virgin Mary. So the government is upset about this. The King of England is a Catholic, remember? And after that, Sir John Knight claims that he's threatened and, and he's beaten up uh, by a couple of Irishmen. So Sir John Knight was advised to retire to a house in the country. Uh, but because he was in fear of beating up, he was quite, uh, you know, they, they beat him and, and kicked him when they attacked him. When he came into Bristol, um, subsequently, he came with a company of people carrying swords and, and muskets in front before him. But he left these at the walls of the city because you're not allowed to carry arms into the city. Bristol Bristol had its own bylaws. Yes, you heard that correctly. He checks his guns at the gate. Now this is worth a slight digression. We tend to forget how violent and <laughs> militaristic 17th century um, England in general and a place like Bristol in particular were. Jonathan Barry again. One reflection of the fact is that Bristol was a leading place for privateering, where basically you capture the ships of your rival traders, as it were, so you load yourself up. Bristol is just beginning at this period to get involved in the slave trade um, with Africa, which, of course, both involved the use of military force, but also, as you may know, that the chief one of the chief products that you actually took there to trade with was, was arms. <laughs> And one of the things that you know, Bristol and places around it were producing, in fact, were lots of arms, but also they needed weapons, cannons for their ships and so on. So we have to imagine a society in which there are a lot of people that are used to using weapons. So why would the Knight case represent some kind of turning point in British attitudes towards guns? Bristol was awash in guns, so much so that they were forced to put gun control measures in place that put anything in America today to shame. I mean, I I think it's absurd to think that the crucial issue here was about whether a man was bearing arms or not, because there were lots of people wandering around bearing arms. Anyway, back to our story with Tim Harris. And then on one day, he goes to church, and he does go with his attendant and goes with a gun and um, sword. But he leaves these, he says he leaves these at the porch with his attendant. The church is St. Michael's on the Hill, his church the one overlooking Bristol. He gets off his horse, checks his weapons at the door. 
Isn't that enormously significant here? So here we have a case that Second Amendment types are claiming is this enormously important precedent for the right of an individual to bear arms. But the individual in question checks his arms at the door of the church. I mean, <laughs> it's like... It's nothing to do. He's not even. He's not waving his gun around or claiming he can wave his gun around. He, he quite willingly adheres to local norms about where guns should and shouldn't be carried. Yes, that seems to be uh, the case. Okay. So Knight enters the church and he shouts out, "The Catholics are trying to kill me, and they're going to try and kill you too." Another quick digression. I asked Jonathan Barry about that moment. One question before we go on with the story. I wanted to go back. Um, how Catholic was Bristol in this era? So if... if Almost almost non-existent. Oh, wait. wait. So wait. So John Knight is, is going into this parish church and saying we're all in danger of being Godfreed by the Catholics. Somebody. Um, and the number of Catholics in Bristol to have conducted such a plot was, was minuscule. So he goes into this church and he says, he tries to kind of whip the church up into a frenzy about the Irish threat. And the government says, you've gone too far. He's implying that the Catholic king is somehow conspiring against his own people. And that's when he gets in trouble with the law. Yes. He doesn't sound very likable, Sir John Knight. Nobody appears to have liked Sir John Knight. No. The government goes after John Knight because he's a jackass. He's running around conjuring up ridiculous conspiracy theories about Catholics. So the charge, all the uh, newsletter accounts I've read, um, emphasize that it's the words that he spoke in the church, which, and therefore this was proof of his disloyalty, um, that was a key issue for why they wanted to arrest him. Now they decide to get him on the Statute of Northampton, which is a, a statute from 1328 saying it's a breach of the peace. And he pleaded not guilty. He claims that um, he didn't take the gun or the sword into the church. He left it outside. And uh, the church is actually just outside the walls of the city of Bristol, as it, as it was back then. Uh, it's a Protestant church, obviously. And uh, he leaves the, the gun and, and the sword outside. And uh, the jury said he's got a tr proven track record of being loyal to the government. And so they found him not guilty. Because he didn't brandish a gun in church. The jury didn't find him disloyal because they knew he'd been loyal to the previous Protestant king. He wasn't armed, so they couldn't get him on that. He just didn't like Catholics. And so what? This is Bristol in 1686. No one in Bristol in 1686 likes Catholics. The case against him is dead on arrival. And by the way, no one knows this better than the government. So they actually don't want to prosecute um, Knight. They actually want Knight to apologize, and then they try and bury the case. That seems to be what's implied in the newsletter accounts I've read. That doesn't happen. They would have preferred if he'd, he'd apologized, and they could have said, okay, we'll let it go. So, to recap, John Knight's episode in the Church of St. Michael has become a heroic moment to the American gun rights movement, even though John Knight wasn't actually carrying a gun when he entered the Church of St. Michael, even though the case against him 
had nothing to do with guns, even though Bristol, in fact, had gun control ordinances that puts every gun control ordinance in America today to shame. And even though the whole brouhaha was just about him being a bigot who was terrified of a Catholic conspiracy taking over Bristol, even though there were hardly any Catholics in Bristol. And even though the whole case was dead on arrival and Knight could have apologized and made it all go away and just didn't feel like it. But the only way you would know all this is if you were willing to wade through the seven volumes of Roger Morris's coded newsletters. And who has time for that? I was reading the... Did you read those? Uh, uh, the historian Tim Harris wrote an yes. essay on. Yeah. I was amused to see there was a... In his, he talks about the Sejuan Knight case, about how when he goes to the church, the Protestant church, right. to speak to what he thought of was the, the, the threat being posed by the Catholics in, Bri- in Bristol, uh, he insists that he checks his weapons at the front of the church. And he also says that when he goes into Bristol, he abided by the bylaws of Bristol and didn't carry his weapons into the um, uh, past the city's uh, limits. I wondered how Joyce Malcolm made sense of all these new facts. The Roger Morris newsletters were finally decoded more than 10 years after she wrote her opus to keep and bear arms. Um, so I'm just curious, like, how do those sort of two facts fit into this story? So even if we have, if the Sir John Knight case represents some kind of... Um, uh, affirmation of the individual right to peaceable carry. So John Knight himself is complying with some pretty strict gun control laws, isn't he? I think, to be honest, that I think that uh, Professor Harris is wrong. <laughs> um, first of all, because there was such a there was all of these duties and requirements to protect yourself, and in the in the judge's opinion in the in their Sir John Knight case. He says that the law allows gentlemen to go about with arms as long as they're not, you know, unusual and dangerous weapons. So the judge seems at odds with um, Professor Harris. Mm. But what do you you make of Sir John Knight's claim that he checked his weapons at the front of the church and didn't carry his weapons into the city of Bristol? I find that very odd. Because if that were the case, if there was a law that he couldn't carry his weapons into the city of Bristol at all, that the whole city was what we would now call a sensitive place, that no one could work. Um, it goes against your right to protect yourself. It goes against your right to protect yourself in your house. It goes against the judge's ruling. And I, and to be honest, I don't I, Professor Harris is British. They don't think much of the right to be armed. The homicide rate in the United States, if you're wondering, is four and a half times higher than the United Kingdom. When I explored that right and told my British friends about it, most of them didn't even realize they ever had had a right to be armed. There's this whole history and I, that they haven't looked at. And I think it was because, as I said earlier, I asked an American question. We were interested in that. They weren't particularly interested in a right to be armed. And so it wasn't something that they had studied or been 
been even very curious about until I started to write about it. Yeah, yeah. But if the British aren't interested in a right to, to bear arms, uh, then why are we drawing on British? Why is British tradition relevant to the discussion of of American individual gun rights? I think this was a history that was lost to them. I think modern British people have a different view of it. They're much more dependent on the state taking care of them, um, particularly since World War II. Um, this is earlier British history. It's a, a history that they really were not that familiar with. Um, you know, they were looking at other things. Um, and I think that one of the, the, I guess the contribution I made was that I was an American that looked at British history and English history with American questions, with the things we were interested in. Yeah. And what of the Supreme Court? How did the highest legal body in the land, in the landmark ruling of New York State Pistol and Rifle Association v. Bruin, handle the fact that their hero has feet of clay? I know I have it somewhere, somewhere, but let me see. <clears throat> I think this is it. Yes. I asked Patrick Charles to read me the relevant section. To the extent that there are multiple plausible interpretations of Sir John Knight's case, we will favor the one that is more consistent with the Second Amendment's command. <laughs> Which, in other words, there's a whole long list of ways we can make sense of this. We're going to pick the one we like the most. Okay, yeah, which one's exactly. that? That's the one that makes our life easiest in, in arguing the case we've already decided we want to argue. It's, yeah. it's, like, it's like history is cherry-picking. Oh, it's so cherry-picked. The Supreme Court decides to clear up the ambiguity over the Second Amendment. Let us leave the verdict to history, they declare. But then their hero turns out to have feet of clay, so they shrug and go on with the things that they had already made up their mind to do before they tried to convince us that they wanted to play historian and go to England and make their pilgrimage to St. Michael on the Hill and pretend that the man who they have chosen to symbolize the grand tradition of American gun rights is something other than a jackass. And after far too many hours reconstructing the history of this jackass, I realized that I had fallen into the same trap that we've all fallen into in this country when it comes to gun violence. We're talking about the wrong things, telling irrelevant stories. And over the course of the next five episodes of Revisionist History, I want to try and change that conversation. I'm going to take you to North Carolina to shoot guns, visit an old man in Alabama with a crazy story to tell, revisit the assassination of Robert Kennedy, on and on, but no more John Knight. I promise. We've all had it with John Knight. What kind of person was he? Not the sort of person I want to have a drink with. He was a nasty piece of work, really. He was vindictive and spiteful. He's a bigot. He's a troublemaker. He's obviously deliberately going out to try and provoke trouble in April 1686 when he gets his priest arrested because he's stirring things up. So, uh, yeah, not a nice piece of work. That's my basic view of him. He's uh, involved in the slave trade as a sugar refiner. Um, I would hardly see that he was a sort of hero figure that champions of American liberty would want to celebrate, although maybe that's not the point. John Knight. 
Our Revisionist History Gun series was produced by Jacob Smith, Ben Nadaf Hafri, Kiara Powell, Tali Emlin, and Lee Mengistu. We were edited by Peter Clowney and Julia Barton, fact-checking by Arthur Gompertz and Cashel Williams. Original scoring by Luis Guerra, with vocals in this episode by the magnificent Ethan Hershenfeld. Mastering by Flan Williams. Engineering by Nina Lawrence. I'm Malcolm Gladwell. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER.